podcast RSS feed isn't broken. Hope this helps us back. And we're fresh AF. Don't adjust your phone. For 39 episodes, we've yacked and yacked and yacked. And now it's the 40th time. We're glad you could tune in to witness the yacking. My name is Steve. And I'm Tiffany. And here's what we hope helps you this time. Just don't fork your parent. Do not fork the parent. Do not kill the child. Just sit back and relax while we tell you how to properly fork things. We were discussing (laughs) funny Unix commands and things that wouldn't do well in a court of law if you search them online for totally legitimate purposes and then they were misconstrued as something else. Unix is like that. Linux is like that. Terminal can be a little dicey. Yeah, you know, like a good old finger. IU.edu describes the finger command as a program you can use to find information about computer users. It usually lists the login name, the full name, and possibly other details about the user you are fingering. <laughs> Wait, does it actually say that as the last sentence that, that you're fingering? You caught that, me off guard there. I know, that was the intent. That was totally You're a wizard, Harry. We're going to move past that really quickly. Wow, yeah. <laughs> We're going to just like move on. We're good at running jokes into the ground. Oh my goodness. Yeah, let's uh kill that and fork on. Time to fork. <laughs> Time to fork. Away from this. I think instead of the boot up, we should call this segment the fork. The fork up? Or the fork off? The fork off? We're forking off the boot up. (laughs) We're forking up the boot off. (laughs) This is the start of the show. I'm crying a little bit. I haven't laughed like this in probably at least two weeks. Happy to be of service, I guess. (laughs) I know. It's just so forking funny. So, unfortunately, that was probably the only forking funny topic I think I had in the queue there, other than serious things. I guess what actually happened in the world outside of forks and spoons and knives and Unix commands, things were announced. Well, yeah, MacBook Pro. MacBook Pro, I guess. I'm more excited about the Surface Pro announcements, or just Surface in general. Because, yeah, you can have your M1s and M1 Pros and M1 Macs, which I find is funny because in an M1 Mac, you have a chip called the M1 Max. So you have the M1 Max in your M1 Mac. It almost also feels like Apple is competing with Pokemon because Pokemon in the new Sword and Shield has also introduced Pokemon that get VMaxed or GMaxed. So now I just feel like there's a competition going on here of who can max the most. So you can be really excited about the Surface Pro because I'm also very excited about it. However, I just need to point out that Apple has created the world's best computer, but that was in 2009. Because if you've noticed, all the fun stuff that they announced today is the same setup that they had when the MacBook Pro was its best in 2009. I think the only thing they're really missing is there still is no Ethernet jack, and also there's no USB-A. So you can have fewer dongles, but you can't quite get rid of all the dongles if you still require either of those. I think the Ethernet jack was probably one of the only things I think was a misstep in that latest MacBook Pro hardware upgrade. Everything else I saw, I was like, wow, okay. That's good. I kind of like that. It was basically right on point with the leak schematics 
from a couple of months prior, but that's okay. My favorite part about Apple is that they're just, they're going back to the basics and going back to the time in which their hardware was actually good. Pretty excited about that. However, it's still a lot of money. Oh, it is a ton of money. Did you see the prices on both the 14 and the 16 inch ones? It's like, wow, people without money need not apply. Yeah, I feel like I need to give my firstborn to get one of these. However, I could just get a Surface. So the Surface Pro Ocho, that one, that one, mm, that one is, uh, mm. that one's tasty. Yeah, <laughs> well, the Surface Pro 8, I literally read it as 8, like 8 food. The Surface Pro 8 because 789. Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, you just forked up. Oh, no. Oh, no. Forked up this whole joke. Oh, no. But in all seriousness, it's like the Surface Pro may not have the compute game that Apple has, but it does have, you know, the hardware variety and innovation and that kind of stuff that the MacBook Pro is just really boring with. So I'm kind of more interested in what Surface is up to with Microsoft things. Not every product they put out that is Surface-based is always a winner. I think the Surface Studio Pro is a little bit out there. I like the idea, but when you start looking at the details, you're kind of like, oh, it only folds in a couple of certain very specific snapped configurations. And while it might have a lot of CPU power, that the best that Intel can offer at least, it's still kind of, eh. The classical Surface Pro, I think, is the best of those brand new announcements that they came out with in the past couple of weeks and i'm yeah. super excited about the 8 to be honest i really like that all it really needed was a bigger screen some compute bump and maybe just a little tune-up on the specifics of the touch cover and the pen and the haptic feedback of the pen i really like because that was always a problem i've had with any tablet-based computer really because it was something where if you're writing on it, you don't really feel that kind of like vibration-y, feedback-y feel when you write with a pencil on paper. That's something that's kind of lost on the glass touchscreen. And to sort of simulate that in the pen, that's really cool. That's kind of something I'm amazed that Apple hasn't even done because I've used both Apple pencils and I just don't like the feeling that you get on these glass touchscreens where it's just too smooth. And you feel like you can just slip the ink away or the pen away from whatever you're doing too easily. It just doesn't feel natural compared to like a raw pencil or pen on paper. Yeah, those things. I am, I am really excited. Um, I'm hoping to test one out soon. Um, but like everything else, they're hard to come by. Yeah, I think they'll be a little bit easier to come by than, say, the MacBook probably. Because... While, yeah, there's a chip shortage, I think at the same time, for some reason, the surfaces don't always usually sell in super high volumes, so they can actually be kind of easy to at least find or buy in a lot of circumstances from most vendors, I guess. Yeah. So at least there's that. Shout out to Costco in particular. I know that was where I got my Surface Pro 6 a few years ago, and they are so kind as to actually include all the accessories that Microsoft kind of nickel and dimes you separately. Usually Costco in particular, not only do they include it, they also include a warranty that's like double the length of the normal warranty. And yeah, I don't know. Costco's great. Not meant to be an advertisement. It was just positive experience kind of stuff. What else do we have on the boot up, or do we just want to jump right into stuff? <laughs> stuffy stuff. Let's jump into stuffy stuff. 
So Windows 11 has come out since the last time that we have met for a podcast. Um, oh, yeah, we don't actually right. meet. Um, we're just virtual. But Windows 11, it looks like this one article that I found. Actually, security experts say that it could be just as bad as Vista. However, that makes me sad. Apparently, there are 14 vulnerabilities already found with Windows 11. And they were confirmed by Microsoft just seven days after the official launch. With Windows 11, I've kind of taken the cautionary approach. Like, yeah, it's out. But I've read some reviews on it, particularly the Ars Technica deep dive review of Windows 11 is really good. It kind of highlights what are the core gains, benefits, drawbacks, annoyances, points of improvement, the goods and the bads and the uglies of Windows 11. If I think back to the original release of Windows 10 and how it went through a bit of a beta period where it kind of transformed from the really awkward iOS chasing experience that was Windows 8.1 to a more back-to-basics Windows 7-like experience, but with some of the more visual progressions of the Zune software and Windows 8 by extension, and that was a journey. But within that journey, there were also some of the missteps of Microsoft sort of adjusting how you receive updates and how they kind of moved away from the gradual modular patching model that was in the previous OSs, like say in Windows 7, 8, and 8.1, Yeah. where in 7, 8, and 8.1, you could choose which patches you wanted to install versus Windows 10. All of a sudden, you only had one option. It was check for and install updates, and off it went. Yes. It was give a little, take a little, and then there was the whole debate about Windows 10's telemetry and how Microsoft kind of probably swung a little bit too much in the wrong direction on a lot of those bullet points. It was really kind of disappointing because otherwise Windows 10 kind of hit it out of the park pretty early on. But it was sort of like other factors that kind of kept it from being like a 10 out of 10 operating system. It was more like a maybe like a 7 or 8 out of 10 otherwise. Still very good, but there's always like one little thing about every OS that kind of makes yeah. you raise an eyebrow. With Windows 11... So far, it seems the story is a lot of removed features, particularly around multiple monitor use and the taskbar. I read online some commentary saying it's great on a laptop or a single screen device, but when you use it with more than one monitor, that's where the experience kind of falls apart. Mm, That makes sense. So it makes sense to like release a new Surface product with it, and you can showcase all of Windows 11's offerings on a single screen experience and sort of hide the other issues where, oh, if you have more than one monitor in, say, like a stacked configuration, and you want the second monitor on the higher tier to use the taskbar at the top of the screen as opposed to the bottom, you can't quite do that right now for some reason. And also all of those handy taskbar context menu options that you used to have in literally every version of Windows that had a taskbar, those have been oddly stripped down in this version of Windows. And hopefully maybe it was an oversight, maybe it was just like in DevOps, maybe it's just incremental increases and releases will solve that. But in the interim, it's kind of a strange omission. Yeah, no, it's true. I will say one of the really good newer features or improvements that they made was with the Windows um, subsystem. 
they made a lot of really good improvements and I've been playing around with it for a few weeks now and I'm really impressed and what they've done with the new terminal. It's pretty cool. I don't remember like exactly the specifics, but they made a lot of like really good improvements to the Windows Linux subsystem. Right. In particular, the ability to run GUI Linux apps, that's yes. going to be, that'll be really helpful. Um, I can't really imagine a lot of Linux apps that aren't on Windows, but to be able to run it at all, that says something. It's always nice to be able to run another operating system's applications and content on the OS that you are on. Case in point, on the Mac, if you can install Wine, particularly using the crossover Wine binaries, using Terminal, you can then run Wine as if you could on Linux and run a lot of executables that normally wouldn't even have a chance on macOS for whatever reason, be it macOS's constant evolution and change that breaks a lot of native applications versus the Windows APIs, which usually stay the same compatible thing no matter what year it is, it seems, or just the ability to pick the computer you want and run the applications you want no matter what it is. Yeah, no, that's really a really great feature. So something cool here is that on Tech Radar, they've been testing out how Linux runs on Windows 11. And with Ubuntu 20 specifically, it looks like Windows 11 WS2 is almost as quick as running Linux natively. So uh, a bare metal, which is actually pretty impressive that it's not even the primary operating system and it can still perform just as well. That is true, though Linux can be pretty lightweight if you oh, run, yeah. if you strip it down just to like system D or just the core background stuff. Like Linux can mm -hmm. run on something as simple as a Raspberry Pi Zero, which has almost nothing for resources. So to say, you know, it can run in the background around Windows, that's not completely out of the question, I'd say. Well, considering that Windows can be kind of a, a hog. Will. That is accurate. Yeah, Windows is going to be Windows. Windows is not like sharing. It's I've space. Heard, I've heard a lot of stories where older laptops, maybe ones that don't have the privilege of having an SSD, have been kind of given a second life when they're given Linux, in particular because of the lower rate of chattiness in terms of disk I.O. or just stuff happening in the background. Linux is very much like it's seen and not heard, and it's only heard when it needs to be heard kind of oper operating environment. So to randomly go on to an aside, one of the most important features that is missing from Windows 11 is 3D Pinball. Although you can just drop the executable in, and that would yes. more or less take care of that. Actually, yes. I just got that running in Wine as a fun little oh, Easter did. egg. Yeah, you can run yeah. it in Wine because all it needs is if the pinball executable exists in the same folder as, I think, the DLLs and the assets, you can actually just run that portably. And I have it running on an M1 Mac, and that's always cool. That is, is really cool. cool. Yeah, no, that was a great game. I forgot about it entirely, and I don't know how. The idle music that plays in my brain is usually just the MIDI music for pinball.exe. Mm, no, it makes sense. No, I totally forgot entirely until the internet was in an uproar the other day about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this game. This is just now I have to like download it and, and just have it. Maybe I'll have, yeah. I'll have to try running it in wine just because just for haha's. Run it on your Mac just because you can. It's not hard. <laughs> I'll put a link nope. to the show notes for the install instructions, or actually I'll write up some install instructions on how to get Wine running on 
any Mac that is actually pretty much any Mac from any Mac OS from pretty much 20, probably 2015 and higher, because I have run it on machines that have been running like High Sierra from roughly 2015, 2016 or so, all the way up to Big Sur on M1 silicon, because the current crossover wine binary works across all of them. And as long as you install a very specific version, you can even run 32-bit applications, even on Big Sur, which supposedly jettisoned 32-bit support. But I don't know what loophole is causing this to work, but it does. I don't know if I broke some security thing that Apple put in or what, but I know ways around things. Yay. He's a smart. I do have one commentary about this article, though. I think it's kind of weird that they're calling an article that's calling out Windows 11 security vulnerabilities as Vista 2.0, when in reality, that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Vista was actually a massive step forward in terms of security when you think about it. It was coming out of Windows XP when every user, regardless of who they were or what status they were at a company, they almost always had local administrative privileges by default. And Vista brought along UAC for the first time which locked down a lot of those easily exploitable permissions that gave us the world of Blaster and, oh man, all kinds of worms from the 2000s and the XP days. So I think it's kind of weird to find someone saying Windows 11 becoming Vista 2.0 based on the merits of security vulnerabilities when they don't actually understand the history of Windows. And Vista was kind of a bad OS, but it wasn't because of security problems. It was because of poor, lackluster hardware and sub-optimized configurations. But security-wise, it was actually really not too bad, especially for the time. I don't think anything will ever be as bad as Windows 8. Sorry, I said what I said. (laughs) Windows 8 was another one where it was just the interface was terrible. Yeah, I'm I'm not taking it back. No, Windows 8 was a pile of something. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Windows 8 was nigh unusable for a lot of people. Actually, it's ironic. The other day, we were actually dealing with a server 2012 box, which uses the Windows 8.0 interface. And I was watching my coworker get utterly frustrated by it because that was the OS that didn't have the start button. That was the OS that required you to move the mouse into corners of the screen to get core menus to show up, such as invoking the start menu or invoking the wow. charms bar or switching you just applications totally, like, triggered i haven't used like server 2012 in so long and now i just like got a flashback of like slamming my mouse into the corner of the screen to try to get the menu to show up yeah and i remember when i was working at a smaller educational institution where we had server 2012 as the default I remember installing Classic Start was just a necessity and a fact of life. We just, you, it was the only way you could get anything done inside a virtualized environment. Not to mention the Start menu didn't have power options or sleep options or anything other than just lock and log off if you clicked your name in the upper right. The options to shut down and all the other stuff didn't come until Server 2012 R2 or the Server 2012 R2 quote-unquote update which was supposed to be Windows 8.1 Update 1 until they rebranded it as Windows 8.1 Update. And Windows 8.1 Update 2 ended up becoming Windows 10 in a really roundabout way. Microsoft just kind of silently rebranded it after they realized Windows 8 and 8.1 were really not doing well. Well, it was smart of them to disassociate them entirely because 
yeah, now I'm just angry thinking about the fact that I, for the first time, no, one of the first times I ever like was on a server 2012 box was like, how do I shut this thing down? How do? And then I just like remember like trying to find the right quarter and then like it was just the most frustrating experience. I know if anything Windows 8 taught me was how to invoke keyboard shortcuts to get around a lot of the sheer garbage that was the UI. And that would prove helpful in Windows 10 in a roundabout way when Microsoft tried to start removing things like control panel commandlets or various handy links to things. I know in my brain to shut a system down, something I kind of learned from Windows 8 was keyboard shortcut was Windows and R and then shut down dash S dash T zero. That will just shut down a system almost immediately and it's just permanently ingrained into my muscle memory. Or if you want to reboot, it's shut down dash R dash T zero and so on and so forth. And then I learned some of the dot CPL commands for things like network adapters or control panel, Windows R, control, enter. There you go, control panel, if in case they ever get rid of the links to that. But yeah, that was it was sort of boot camp for figuring out ways to box my way around the UI in those days. No, that's really smart. I have to say, Windows 8 is what taught me keyboard commands as well, because it's frustrating if you don't. Absolutely. Ah, so speak, kind of speaking of Windows 8, but also speaking of things better than Windows 8, Microsoft and uh, Defender, there's a bit of an update on the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint situation in terms of some of the older operating systems, at least. In a section, in a new, not-so-recurring section, I'd like to call Player One Defeated. I don't know why I'm calling it that other than just... Yeah, I don't know why either, but it sounds... It works. I'm the only one who's using the acronym DFE, which I call DEEF, and then I think Defeated. Defeated. I like it. Welcome to my world of making stuff up as I go. Anyways, so Microsoft Defender for Endpoint on servers. Microsoft put out a new article which was sort of a referendum on how you onboard some of these older OSs. And in particular, we're kind of focusing in on the middle child OSs in terms of the support model. And that would be Windows Server 2012 R2 and Windows Server 2016. In the support landscape, Windows Server 2012 R2 is approaching its twilight years in terms of support, but it still is officially supported. And it is still on the list of OSs that work with Microsoft Defender for Endpoint, along with Windows Server 2008 R2 if you have the extended support updates model, but not Server 2012 non-R2 for reasons that still escape me to this day. Wait, still non-R? Is that just kind of like an FU, like because they don't want you to use it? I think it's just an FU. It's Or, or maybe it's really... they couldn't find the start button. Sorry, I had to. I think yeah, it just got trapped inside trapped. the internet. Yes. <laughs> I think they just got trapped inside the interface and they couldn't figure out how to get all the parts working. They're still in there right now trying to figure it out. Once they find their way out, they will promptly add support to Microsoft 365 yeah. for defending yeah. Server 2012, yeah. the non-R2 edition. Whoever is like working on it is like a skeleton just like trying to get out of there now. Our hearts go out to you, poor guy, stuck on that project. Yes. I hope you get out soon. If you need help, uh, send some kind of ping or something if you can even find the interface to ping. Just Any- send a telnet or SSH, you know, holler our way if you can figure it out. Send a finger. 
that a banger. <laughs> I didn't think that was gonna come back around. It does. Oh man. Anyway, I'm so I'm so sorry. So trying. <laughs> so yeah. So the in the landscape of Defender for Endpoint, we now have Server 2008 R2, which is the base OS, the oldest OS you can get into the cloud protection model. Then awkwardly not server 2012 then server 2012 r2 all the way up to server 2022 are supported for defender onboarding and as you'll recall depending on how old the os is there are certain prerequisites that you need to install it could be anything from certain cumulative updates to certain specific kbs for telemetry and monitoring sort of priming the pumps if you will for allowing all that data to go to the cloud and report in on threats and vulnerabilities and allow for all that goodliness that the A5E5 license provides for Defender for Endpoint. But I think Microsoft might have seen the light. Maybe they listened to this podcast when I previously complained endlessly about this. They may have noticed that it is kind of a pain to onboard these server OSs with the stuff because it just, you know, there's no one single installer for some of the stuff, unless it's server 2019 specifically. If you go back as far as server 2012 R2, you gotta check for a KB, you gotta install the Microsoft monitoring agent, then you gotta make sure you got system center endpoint protection installed if you choose to use the Microsoft solution for antivirus, and making sure all that is installed, that can really take a toll on you, getting that all onboarded. If you're using GPOs, if you're using any kind of manner of deployment software, or if you're just sneaker netting it onto these servers, which often you may have to do because not all servers are always compatible with that kind of deployment model as opposed to Windows client OSs. Anyways, whatever your model is on that, I think Microsoft realized that that's kind of a pain. They'd like to make the onboarding process as easy as it is in server 2019, so it looks like they've extended some simplicity back to server 2012 R2 and server 2016 through a new quote-unquote modernized unified solution for Defender for Endpoint on these two OSs. And it looks to me that they are trying to make it such that you can just run an installer called the Microsoft Defender for Endpoint Setup Wizard, which will take care of it all. And let me just say, I really wish they came out with this a couple months ago back when I was kind of deploying this at scale because, man, that would have simplified a lot of my runbooks and made life just a tidbit easier. But hey, what are you going to do? Some people are pioneers, right? Yeah. Wait, so you know how you said that maybe Microsoft listened? Didn't that come out like right after our podcast? I'm just saying, just throwing that out. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that we influenced anybody here or anything, but I find it oddly coincidental that it it, sucks. We complained about it. It's sus to say the least. Oh no, sus right. is a sus is a different product. Excuse me, that's a server oh, that, services. Oh. <laughs> we are just full of dad puns. We're full of forks and fingers. Yeah, and... forks and fingers and children. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm not, but no, I just have one. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> Oh man, I lost my train of thought because I was just laughing uh, so hard. I know. We're, I'm yeah. <laughs> Derailment is the theme of the podcast tonight. So yes, so I guess those changes are coming up in uh, Q1 of 2022 is apparently when these changes are alive. So until then, I'm sorry. I guess you got to do it the old way. 
But if you're looking to onboard Defender for Endpoint 2022, it might get a little easier for you if you are still holding on to some of these older operating systems for whatever business compliant reason that you have. Yes. Listen to Steve. Sometimes. Not all the time. Being listened to all the time is not always the best. Speaking of not listening to me. So yeah, Apple Part 2. More topics on... We've become like an Apple podcast. I gotta catch up on other stuff. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about being an Apple podcast occasionally, but hey, we are what we are, I guess. We are what we are. We're, We're more like becoming open source the podcast but we're getting there we're still not there yet i'm more accepting to be an open source podcast than an apple podcast yes Um, that means that uh more linux for everyone yes so the in addition to the interesting macbook pro developments i just thought this was funny that there's apparently a voice plan that apple announced for apple music and for the low low price of five dollars a month which is still quite a bit a year when you really think about it you get Apple Music, but you can only use it via Siri. It's like, why would anybody want that? Like, Siri is bad enough, but imagine having no interface other than Siri to use Apple Music. And then I think about it from an accessibility standpoint. Like, what about those who are mute? You just can't use this plan. And it's supposed to, it's advertised as an economical plan, so what about those folks? Like, come on, Apple, think about it. Yeah. It's effectively well, in- inconvenience for a lower price. That's the Apple Music voice plan. But can't you use Siri like, oh, because Siri, oh. Siri never listens to me anyways. I, I gave up on it entirely. My heart goes out to the guy on the Houston Astros. His last name is Siri. I believe he's one of the starting lineup or one of the starting lineup batters. Uh, I, I'm forgetting now. I don't have the info in front of me. It was on the Red Sox game and the info before the game started. But man, just imagine if your name is like, if your name first or last is Siri or Alexa, it must be just difficult being around smart devices. Well, right. How does that work in like Scandinavian countries or like everyone is named Siri? I don't know. Because you just can't own Apple products there. Right. Like you you can't say, hey, Siri, because like a million phones are going to go off. Right. Exactly. I'm sure they hopefully they thought of that, but you never know. So one of the other things they announced was different HomePod colors because I've always wanted a HomePod that was dipped in food coloring or the pumpkin HomePod. Why wouldn't you want that? The pumpkin pod? Yeah. Don't you want that? I totally don't need that. They announced the new AirPods. They just look like AirPod Pros. Yeah, which I don't know how I feel about that because the nice thing about the standard AirPods was that they don't go inside your ears. And if now that they're looking to sort of go the pro approach where they go into your ears i don't know not everybody likes that i'm indifferent but i know plenty of people that don't like that yeah i don't like it at all not even a little bit nope not even a little bit nopers sorry i just got really distracted but i just found a link to and this might be exactly what you have uh space pinball in linux but it might be exactly what you were just saying oh yeah there you go. It might be right there. I found a GitHub repository. Nice. For it. Yeah. So I promise that's the last I think I have to say about Apple, at least today. It just so happened that there was an Apple event, one of which I didn't really even know about till half the day was over. No, I had no idea. So let's swing in a totally different direction, more in the open source Docker container style direction. I don't think we've had one of these sections in a while. No, it's been a little bit. 
So we'll call this the Hope This Helps Tip of the Something, because I don't have a better name for it. And we've had a different segment with the same name, so I'm going to make it a recurring I segment, know. I guess. Isn't Docker like a ship? So you can call it like Hope This Helps. The SSHTH? Yeah. Well, yeah, that. <laughs> the Docker logo, I believe, is a whale. Unless oh, I yeah. No, sorry. I'm misremembering I don't know that. No, it is a whale. I think, uh, though, isn't it a submarine now? Like the little icon? Or it might still be a whale. I don't Maybe know. Maybe it's both. Don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't either. Neither of us know what we're talking about. That's no. why it makes a great point. It makes a great show. It does. I'm just like mumbling some words at this point. It's all good. Let me mumble some words here for. All right. Um, go for it. <laughs> so. Yeah, so this is something I did by mistake, but I learned a lot from it. It's uh, don't sudo rmrf your Docker storage folder. Just don't do it. Bad things happen, and I have a short list of things that may happen if you decide to go down this route. Oh, please tell. Oh, I will. So some things that may happen if you delete your Docker storage folder. All of your Docker images might just go poof. You might receive errors trying to update containers. If a container is restarted, it will not come back. Portainer specifically will explode. And you'll have to rebuild all of your Docker Compose YMLs or stacks in Portainer. And I hope you had a backup somewhere else because those will just disappear as well. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Don't pseudo RMRF your Docker storage folder. Thank you. Wow. Why did you do that? I'm just curious. So the reason I did that, it was a complete idiotic mistake on my part. I was trying to delete a configuration folder for a different container, and my stupid brain instead did an ls on the directory, and I was wondering what the name of this one other directory was, and it just was named lib, which stands in the Linux world often for like libraries. And I was like, I don't recall putting this here. I don't, and I CD'd into it. I did a recurring LS. And I was like, I'm not, nothing in here is ringing a bell. What is this? And it's on my Raspberry Pi. And what I didn't realize at the time was I moved my Docker storage folder to my config folder for my Docker containers because I wanted to reduce the strain on the SD card in terms of disk IO and not wear it out as fast because I'm using the Watchtower container, which updates my bevy of Docker containers on this Raspberry Pi. But in doing so, I apparently forgot to leave a note, or I just forgot about it. But in the Open Media Vault control panel, under Docker, I moved my Docker storage to this folder, and I named the folder lib to put everything underneath it, and I thought that would be a logical name. But my stupid brain forgot about that, and I was like, oh, I don't need this folder. And funny enough, sudo rmrf also doesn't care. It just deletes whatever you tell it to delete. And I pointed it at that folder, and man, Docker was not happy about that. Containers that were actively running appeared to keep running in memory at the very least. But once you tried to change them or stop them or reconfigure them or pull them again, that was when the fun began. So, oh boy, yeah, so don't just don't do it. It's not a good idea. Great way to learn Docker, but bad way to, you know, keep things running. Yeah. That's Centra. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. I hope this helps somebody. My interactions with Docker were also, they weren't like that. 
But when I was first trying to install it using uh, WLS, I was trying to, one, I forgot all about Linux permissioning, that if you change something on the Windows side and then you try to go back to Linux, your permissioning is all done for. And I hadn't used Linux in a very long time. So I really just spaced out on that because I was trying to like put the actual, um, I was playing around with Terraform. So I put the main.tf file in directly into the file system on the Windows side. But then I realized after like an hour of going, why isn't this working? It's saying there's no file in the directory. And then I remember, and I kept getting errors because it couldn't install like the Terraform uh, main file. Then that's when I realized that I needed to put the file into Linux. And again, it's been a really long time and I didn't remember how to do that. And so I'm like sitting there going like, why isn't this working? What am I doing? And then I remembered how to use the the cat command and get my file in that way. But then I gave up entirely and just decided to like just use Linux by itself. (laughs) Because I was just like, this is so... I understand like why I would use both, but I was just like, I don't know when. I was just like so frustrated. But... I keep jumping around. I digress. So when I was first installing Docker, I kept running into errors where it's like, I forget exactly which BIOS setting right now. But when I, I want to say for virtual, for containers and virtualization, I didn't realize that in my BIOS settings, it was off. So every time I kept trying to run Docker, it kept failing out and telling me, no, you can't do that. Finally, I realized that I had to actually go into BIOS turn it on yeah oh yes because docker effectively requires bios virtualization the same way that uh vms require yeah so yeah you do need to enable that and i think my newest desktop i had to do that as well because i hadn't yet enabled virtualization and then when i tried to do anything docker related it was like sorry you got to turn this on which requires rebooting which might be inconvenient at times yeah, it it took me a little bit to figure it out. But when I actually read what it was saying, I was like, oh, I just need to turn this on. And then depending on your bio settings, uh, mine was pretty tucked away. So I had to kind of hunt through the bios because I have, however you want to say it, Asus or Asus board. I have both, but I don't yeah. actually know the correct way. Yeah, mine was pretty tucked away as well. I have an AMD motherboard now. Yeah, I want to say mine might also be Asus. But yeah, it was a really esoteric setting that I recall. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't just enable virtualization. It was it was labeled a really strange label. And yes. specifically my motherboard is uh it's an Asus TUF Gaming B55 Plus ATX AM4. And yeah, it was really buried in the settings trying to find the virtualization setting. So I think I'm I'm not surprised that you probably have the same experience that I did trying to find that thing. Yeah, it was, um, especially because I hate the Asus, like, BIOS settings. I don't know why, but the interface is just absolute garbage. My problem with it coming off of um, an MSI motherboard from my previous build was that, yeah, the settings are a little bit tough to find. They're not very well labeled. And, yeah, it just could be organized better. I'm sure it will get better support than my old motherboard did, but, man, they got to work on 
finding things or maybe just have a search feature at the top of the thing to yes. say, I need to find this. Let me just type the thing I need. Right. Because I can use my mouse now. So why can't I just search? But it's under CPU configuration. And then you scroll down and you select SVM mode and then you have to enable it. But I think mine was different. I'm looking at the Asus motherboard, but that might be right. I feel like mine was had a weirder, but SVM sounds about right. Next time I turn on, I'm not going to turn my PC on now because it's really loud because my 3700 makes a lot of noise. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, I want to say SVM sounds right. I didn't write down what the setting was for mine because I, I figured either. I would I figured I would go in there once, enable it once, and then never have to turn it off again. So I didn't really bother documenting where it was. It was just kind of like when I found it, I found it. But yeah, it might be SVM. Well, now I feel like I need to look this up because it's going to bother me more than anything. I don't know. I eventually got Docker running. I eventually figured it all out. And I was able to finally work on some Terraform stuff. And that was pretty fun, um, I will say. But yeah, I don't have anything else to say. My is thoughts. Terraform something that operates out of a Docker container specifically? It or is it just something you use to build Docker containers? Yeah, so it's a tool that you use to build the Docker containers, but it also, they work kind of in conjunction with each other. I'm still learning exactly how they work together. I can definitely, this is good for me, is to document it once I understand it better, and then we I can talk about it next time. Just because I'm still like trying to understand exactly how it utilizes Docker and how they like work together. All I know is Terraform reminds me of PowerShell, and I have run PowerShell once inside a Docker container, but it was kind of one of those, like, why should I do it this way? Because I can get PowerShell not only on Windows natively, but on Linux and Mac natively. So I'm like, what's the point of running this in a container when I can just run it elsewhere? But I did it just for S's and G's, but I imagine maybe Terraform is less widely available compared to PowerShell, especially in terms of operating system support. So deploying it in a Docker container there might have a lot more advantages as opposed to PowerShell, which is kind of like a neat next kind of thing. So Terraform is, so I'm reading here. So Terraform interacts with the Docker containers and its images. So that way you can manage like actually effectively the life cycle of the Docker containers. So that kind of makes sense. So what's nice about Terraform is that um, I think for cloud, so when you're looking at the cloud versus PowerShell, is that Terraform is a lot simpler because it's using just either Bash or the other one, ZS. I'm not familiar with the other one, um, the other like Bash-like one. And it's just meant to be very simple, but it's also keeps like your session states and your cloud, like all those, that information. So you can also protect that. So as I'm like learning more about this, I'm like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And even like comparing some of the PowerShell scripts to Terraform, Terraform is just like way simpler. So I'm seeing here the Docker-specific implementations of HashiCorp's Terraform. Yeah, so I understand it's, yeah, you can build, change, and destroy Docker infrastructure using Terraform. And that sort of sounds like automation. And yeah, you can build up and tear down an entire setup of stuff using this framework. 
that yes. kind of reminds me. It's like as if one day I woke up and I decided I want to tear down my entire Docker system on one of my Raspberry Pis and build it back up again, but maybe slightly differently. Maybe if I, yes. for some insane reason, wanted to do that at home, I guess I could use Terraform to do that. In an enterprise setting, that sounds like something I'll make a whole lot more sense. But in a home context, it's kind of like, I don't know, like taking it's, out bugs with a nuclear bomb kind of thing. Yeah, it's a lot of work to set up and configure for like a 1T2Z. Just because you do have to, at least on my Windows machine, it was kind of annoying because I had to do a lot of like tweaking and a lot of downloading of things to install one to like use it once or twice. So I'm sure I will use it more, but it was just a lot of work for the onesie twosies. Yeah, this to me, this sounds like a weird, insanely more complicated way to just use Docker Compose YAML files, which mm. those are really easy. And it's kind of like, why do I need Terraform when I could just use YAML files saved to a GitHub somewhere or put in a pipeline in Azure DevOps? But, you know, the more options you have to do things is always the better. But personally, yes. for me, I'm like, I'd just rather have like a large portainer stack containing all of my containers. And you can just update that one YAML file with any configuration changes and just redeploy it. No, that's that's very true. I think that the thing about Terraform is that it you can use it for all of your cloud infrastructure. You're, yeah, so, so it's not probably... just your Docker containers. So you can set VLAN, you can set up, like you can do all your networking infrastructure. There's an active directory module, so you can do users in groups. So it's more of like a standardizing and having all of your infrastructure as code in one place rather yeah. than using Docker Compose for one thing and then having to keep track. Right, and not to mention Terraform is more than just Docker. I'm only specifically zoning yeah, on just the yeah. Docker part of this but yeah it, it extends to far more than docker it works in aws azure and all that other stuff yeah it's just it's just really to standardize workflows across multiple services so if you're just using docker then docker compose probably makes plenty of sense but if you're trying to like manage an entire cloud infrastructure then it's probably going to be really hard to keep track of all these 1d2d like the different tools because there's also like well ansible is a different type of tool but then there's always like it comes down to you know how are you really managing all of your workflows because I've seen multiple, I've seen environments where there's like tons of tools and no one knows where anything is. And that doesn't really help anybody. Sounds like my garage. Yeah. Bunch of stuff yes. out there. Don't really know where any of it right. is or what happened. You got lots does. of tools. They're just not in the right place. Right. Yeah. But yeah, that was my really bad explanation of this because I'm still learning and getting my, my feet wet. So as I, I learn more, I'll definitely keep you informed. Sounds good to me. Yeah, I'm. I mostly live in the Docker Compose world when it comes to experimenting with stuff because it's kind of like once you learn one thing and get really good at it, you kind of really zone in on it. I know one project I was working on in my spare time was it's kind of a Discord competitor known as Revolt, and oh, yeah. they have they offer a Docker Compose stack, which is a YAML file containing all of the configuration you need to deploy a self-hosted instance of it. The only issue with it is I was unable to actually get it fully functional. I was able to get all the containers stood up and I was able to get to a login screen, 
But when I went to register the admin account for the first time, it just kind of spun its wheels and never progressed past that. And what drove me crazy was that there were no logs and no errors in any of the containers. I was like, I don't even know where to begin to look here. But I guess it's an active work in progress. So that'll be cool. But that's just sort of an example of some of the interesting things you can do with stuff like this. I know I didn't use Terraform for it, but Terraform could probably do the exact same thing where you spin up like eight different containers One's like your database, one's front end, one's cleanup, one is SSO, one's all this kind of stuff. And that's sort of the magic of being able to just have one engine that can deploy all this at once and do it at scale. And then when you start thinking of enterprise, instead of just like me at home screwing around with something, it gets exciting really fast. Yeah, no, that's really true. Yeah. So that was cool. Cool. So we turned my sad story of deleting my Docker storage folder into something actually productive. So I'm happy I kept this in the list then. Yeah. No, I'm glad you did too. It was a good conversation. Indeed. Okay. So I don't know. I think that was everything I had written down. I don't know if you have anything else. No, I think we're. this is good. So we hope this helps. We're a podcast, tech podcast. We're not an Apple podcast, even though we might talk about Apple. This is like the end credits of a Marvel movie, stuff that should have been at the beginning, but we put it at the end. May like, comment, subscribe wherever you can about this podcast. Share it, rate it, talk about it. If you like the podcast, give it a follow, subscribe, whatever it is. And Or what is like, what are all the kids doing now on the YouTubes? They're all like, smash the like button. Smash yeah. that like button. I don't know why I have to say it like that. I have to say like, smash the like button. You hit um, the subscribe button, you ring the bell. I don't know. What are the... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, what? What? Like, what bell am I ringing? Like, have I just hit an age in which I'm just like, what are you looking at? Like, the YouTube has not changed. I always like older YouTube videos where they say, "Go click this annotation," and the annotation is not there anymore, or they like point like down below. They say, "Click this link down below in the description," and like YouTube changed the layout so it's not actually there anymore. Yes, or it's been removed because it's like content that was just removed. Or the really old days of YouTube when like the info pane was actually on the right side as opposed to the bottom. Mm-hmm. All that's fascinating to me. It's like the older relics of YouTube from when that's why you never rely on a single website's a website's single layout because it might change on you and then it will look really silly 15 years later. Yes. That's why if I ever did YouTube, I would just point in all the wrong places on purpose. Yes. Anyways, but luckily we're a podcast, so we don't have to do that. There is no visual medium to be had here, which is I'm not good. sure that I could sit still for a full hour and have my face. Like, I don't know. It would just be pretty much what people at work see me when I'm on videos. Me just like touching random stuff or just like writing things down because it's the only way I can pay attention. Right. Or me where like where I'm recording is often just kind of a mess. So... It's like, no, I don't want video on for that. Forget that. Okay, so anyways, um, I think that's all we got this week. And um, happy 40th episode of Hope This Helps. I forgot about that already. (laughs) Nothing screams celebration like forgetting about it. can't believe it's been 40. We'll be over the hill soon. It comes faster than you think. Yeah. Wow. 40 episodes. 40. Well, we'll be back next time for episode 41. Yay, hope this helps. Hope this helps.